It's good to see you. Good to see you. I uh, think it's always a fun moment, right, where we get to get into a series and then we get to kind of, I don't know, dive into some different things. And this is our John series. So this is week two. And I, I have to tell you something right up front. If you're watching online or if you're here, today's message is going to be a little bit more cerebral. All right. And I want to be real with you. All right. And th- that just means you have to use your brain. All right, you can't just use your heart today. You got to use a little bit of your thinking cap. Um, and so, uh, intentionally, I am telling you this up front because when I originally looked at the text in John chapter seven and chapter eight, I read this uh, title over those, and it said the Feast of the Tabernacles. Just like you, just like you watching online, I'm sure you went, "Oh, of course, the Feast of the Tabernacles." No, all of it. I got it all figured out. I, figured, I know it all. What, what do you want to know? You don't know anything? And so this week, I, I actually told my wife, all right, this confession, vulnerability. I went, mm, I don't want to do that. I want to go back to John chapter 3 and talk about Nicodemus and John 3.16. You know, I want, I want to get to some fun stuff. I want to do a miracle. I want to have, you know, something happen. And, you know, basically this is just going to be a giant lesson. But, but here's what I'll tell you. John is a brilliant book, and I hope that you're reading it. I hope that you're investigating, because what I want to share with you today, I think is powerful, and it's amazing, and it's worth knowing, and it's worth studying. It just takes a little bit more of your thinking cap, and reason it does is because when the Jewish people heard the Feast of the Tabernacles, they knew what they're talking about. We have to do a little bit more legwork to get back to the context of what we're going to read today. So, starting at the beginning, all right, the creation of the tabernacle. All right, if we're going to talk about the Feast of the Tabernacles, what is the tabernacle? (laughs) All right, so this is the tabernacle that was given to Moses wandering around in the desert. This was what he designed and gave to Moses to create. Now, obviously, this is a real photograph that was taken, all right? Now, the real time. No, this is a remake. Some of you got there, you're like, really? Yeah, yes, I found it on the internet. Uh, you know, like, it's, it's, this is such a cool thing, though. You get to see, like, there's, there's drapings of curtains. There's, there's multiple different things inside this area. Now, this, as a whole, was called the tabernacle, and there was several things inside of this that were important. This little building over here, this little hut, uh, held several different rooms, but it's probably the most prominent thing that you need to know because inside that, it had several rooms that got smaller and smaller, and in the center of this room, the back was this place called the Holy of Holies. It was a place where the Ark of the Covenant and then the physical Ten Commandments existed. If you've seen Indiana Jones, not that far off, all right? But in that space of the Holy of Holies, what you need to know is it was said to hold the very presence of Yahweh. It was said to hold the very presence of God. And why this is important is because this was put at the center of the Israelite camp every time they stopped. And so at the very center of the camp, at the very center position, is the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. See that at the center of their lives. 
Really, really cool. So they know this. They've heard this. But this is also history to them in John. This isn't something they've gone through. This is thousands of years before, hundreds of years before. You know, this is not them going, oh, yeah, the tabernacle. I remember that. So what the heck is the Feast of Tabernacles then? Because if that's something that's about history on history. So we're learning about the history that's celebrating the real thing. So what's the Feast of the Tabernacles? You've got to go to a book that I, I doubt... I doubt very many of you have even dabbled in. you got to go to the book of Leviticus. All right? Leviticus. Now, if, if some of you haven't read the book of Leviticus, I don't blame you. But at the same time, there's some really good stuff in there. Right? The context to this is this is in Leviticus chapter 23 is where we get the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, what the Feast of the Tabernacles is actually for is for the Israelites to remember back to what it was like coming out of Egypt, to remember God's faithfulness, to remember what God had done, to remember how God had been with them, had taken them out of slavery and put them in a place of their own promise land and set them apart as a holy nation. And so the whole day or the whole week, actually, of this festival, I should say, uh, this is God talking to Moses. Let's just read just a few verses of this. This kind of gives you a good perspective. This is about the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is what it is. Say to the Israelites on the 15th day, the seventh month, so that would be, you know, to us, July 15th, doing a little more research and looking into it. It's more like September to them, you know, on our calendar. The Feast of the Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. Hold up. We need some holidays that last seven days. Can we get on board for that? I mean, can I get an amen, right? Can we just a seven-day party? Sounds Fantastic. On the first day, it's sacred assembly, and no regular work can be done. I want to tagline that, dishes included. All right? And for seven days, present food offerings to the Lord, and on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly, present food offerings to the Lord. It's the closing special assembly. Do not do regular work. So here's, here's, the, here's the concept. You ready? For seven days, we are going to remember and give honor and give sacrifices and give offerings to God to remember his faithfulness. What he's done. Now, they did multiple things during this festival, tons of things. Grain offerings, uh, livestock, livestock offerings. They did confessions. They did group prayers. They did ceremonial washings of certain things. They did lots of things. But one of the things that they had to do was they had to live in man or little like shack made huts. They weren't allowed to stay in their permanent homes. They actually had to live in these shacks. And so this is where the party starts to get a little less fun, right? Because in September, that's the rainy season. And so what's funny is when we read a little bit about this, you hear that the surrounding kingdoms of Canaanites and everything, everybody would bring in their harvest, plant their new seed for the new harvest, and the rains would come, and then all the Israelites would leave their permanent homes and go out into these little shacks, And they would live in these shacks, and that was because that's what they lived in when they wandered for 40 days or 40 years in the desert. They wanted, God wanted them to have the full experience to remember his faithfulness. So they did this for a week, once a year. Now, why have I just, I gave you just like, that's like a Bible college length lesson on the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, that wasn't all the details. I can't give you everything. I'm going to tell you a little bit more. But that's why when you read John chapter 7 and you see Jesus is in the week of the Feast of the Tabernacles, you start to go, oh, this is a celebration 
of God's presence and faithfulness to the nation of Israel. Now what's even cooler is that Jesus has an intimate connection with this word tabernacle. And John has pointed it out. We just missed it because it's in English. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, The Word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We have seen His glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Don't we need this a lot right now? But here's where the word, do you see the word tabernacle anywhere up here? Anybody got the reading skills of me? You ought to find it. Yeah, I didn't see it either. That's because in English, we have translated a Greek word out of its Greek form. Made his dwelling is equal to tabernacle with us. Made his dwelling actually translates to the Greek form of the word tabernacle. So, of course, we don't translate it, and the word became flesh, and it tabernacled with us. We're like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and so they translated, made his dwelling. You remember that tent with the Holy of Holies? He has come to the center. He has come, not staying at a distance, but coming into and making his dwelling. He tabernacles with us. So knowing that context in John chapter 7, we see Jesus go into Jerusalem where the party's going on. But guess who does? His disciples. They're like, Jesus, we gotta go. This is a mandatory holiday. This is where everybody comes together. This is, this is like, we're supposed to be there. And Jesus is like, nah, my time hasn't come yet. Are you starting to feel the weight of what Jesus knows is the next in this tabernacle relationship. So that way, when you recognize that when Jesus comes in and he starts laying out that he is the Messiah, he is God incarnate, he is God's son, he is the savior of the world, and when he starts laying it out as simply as he can, quoting prophecy, revealing that he is talking about and that he is who they've been looking for, they don't like it. This festival is about the past. This festival is about God's past faithfulness. And to them, it looks like Jesus is trying to come in and do what? Steal the limelight. Make it about him. So Jesus turns and he says a few statements in the end of chapter 7 and in the beginning of chapter 8 that reveal what he's trying to get them to hear. Chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, he says this, On the last day, the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up. Remember, all the, all the nation is there. This is the center of Jerusalem. And not now a temporary temple, the tabernacle, but now a permanent temple that holds the Holy of Holies in the center of Jerusalem. And he stands up in a loud voice and he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow within them. Now, when you look this up, pause and go back there real quick. When you look that up right here, rivers of living water flowing within, that verse will explode in your concordance. 
where this can go, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, through the prophets, through even the epistles, this, this concept of a river of life flowing, that water and everything that it touches, it restores and brings back life. Very, very prominent. So John adds in this little context clue. Because you haven't got to the end of the letter yet, but he's expecting you to read this multiple times. Right? By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were later receive. Upon that, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So he hadn't left and allowed the Spirit to come yet. So he's just clarifying to let you know that this living water, this breathing real thing, is the tabernacle moment of the Holy Spirit that's going to be offered to the people. This living, breathing spirit full of truth is going to be offered. Now, in that moment, Jesus doesn't get to explain his death and then the Holy Spirit's coming, right? So he's trying to attach this to an illustration that would make sense for his audience, that they would get. So who do you think he attaches his illustration to and what his imagery that he is trying to get them to see this is the truth. If it's the Feast of the Tabernacles, and what we've explained is that Moses set that up in Levitical code through the 40 years, I want to just show you what maybe they heard if they were listening well. Does anybody remember this concept in Exodus 17? You may not or may, but I told you you're going to need to use your brain. The people are wandering in the desert. Guess what? The deserts are Missouri hot, all right? So they're thirsty. And so God says, I will stand there before you by this rock at Hebam and strike the rock and water will flow out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in front of the sight of the elders of Israel. Now pause. When's the last time you saw somebody hit a rock and water come out of it? Anybody? Now, if you want to go even a little bit more Bible nerd, how many times has God referred to as a rock? It's a firm foundation. A lot. Notice this. Strike the rock. Now, there's a lot of debate on what this means. So let me give you some clarification. The, the Israelites don't stay in one place for 40 years. They wander around. They kind of walk in circles, do a couple laps, do, do some different things. So there's a little bit of debate on what this rock means. Some scholars think that this rock went with them. Like they're like, hey, that water rock, we need that. So they like towed this rock around. Other scholars think this was a repeated process everywhere they stopped. That he would go out, wait. And then, but this was something that happened over and over and over again for them to see. So when Jesus stands up there in a loud voice and says, Come to me if you want living waters, rivers of living water, their minds attached to this. Their minds attached to this. It's scandalous, but it's symbolic. 
It's scandalous, but it's symbolic. What I mean by that is this. Jesus is claiming to be God and offer the same things that Moses did in the middle of the Feast of the Tabernacles. In fact, I think it's three separate times in chapters 7 and 8, the crowd literally is described as wanting to kill Jesus. At one point, they pick up stones to stone him in this. That their intensity of what he's claiming. But it's, it's not enough that Jesus says this about living water, but he says one more statement. It's a statement that you and I have heard before, but maybe we didn't recognize the context. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus stands up once again and he says this. When, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And remember, we've talked about this before. In the book of John, anytime you see light, it is life. And anytime you see darkness, it is death. That is what he is talking about. Whoever follows me will walk in death, but whoever, whoever doesn't follow me will walk in death, but whoever does will walk in life. My mind attaches it to what? The pillar of fire and the cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt. If you're not familiar with this, when they crossed over the Red Sea and then they got out into the desert, they needed a direction. And so God provided this pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night, and it never left. It was kind of their compass for where they were to head and where they were to go, and it was a good indication that God was with them. And so this, of course, immediately leads to that, right? Where you're like, oh, that's so cool. But it's not only that. Jesus now moves to an illustration that you and I wouldn't be aware of, but he would be fully in the presence of. When you do a little research, you find out that this Feast of the Tabernacles, each day they added torches to the temple and the temple courts. And so every day that this festival went on, they would add more and more light. And it, it is described, and I've heard it described, that by the last day, there is so many torches lit, and that area of the temple is so lit up in its entirety that some of the rabbis claim, which was far-fetched, but even Galilee could have seen the temple in Jerusalem because it was lit up for all to see. What's fascinating is when Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. It's scandalous, but it's symbolic. It's scandalous, but it's symbolic because they think the presence of God is in that temple and they are lighting it up for the whole nation to be reminded that just like the tabernacle when they were wandering in the desert, just like God has proved his faithfulness by providing their home, now he stands with them still in this temple and they have lit it so the whole nation would see. And then Jesus stands up and goes, I am the light of the world. Scandalous. 
but symbolic. For most of us, I think we realize that Jesus does this with our hearts all the time, doesn't he? He takes our plans or what we're trying to celebrate and then he reveals some heart chains or heart shifts or the things that need to be twisted, looked at a little differently, navigated. And most of the time he does it in a way that feels just, oh, how'd you get in there? How'd you pry? That was an off-limits section of my heart. That was, this is my festival. This is my party. <laughs> this is my plan, all right? Nothing good flows from rocks. I don't need your light. I have light in my life. There's also more going on behind the scenes. We know that. John chapter 19, Jesus has been crucified and he's hanging on the cross. And when you die from crucifixion, you die of asphyxiation, so you can't raise yourself up anymore to take a breath, and so you literally suffocate in your own fluids in your lungs. And sometimes it can be tough to tell if someone's still alive, and there's even accounts of people lasting days or even a week if they're strong. Jesus breathes his last breath and the soldiers that are there along with John who watches Jesus take his last breath we see the soldiers there do this that instead they normally and this is why that instead is here normally they came with a club and just broke the knees of the person that was crucified so that they would no longer be able to lift up they would just come and crush the knees they would fall and then they would be Suffocated, but instead, one of the soldiers comes and he pierces Jesus' side, which is so prophetic, and you need to look this up if you've never. This is prophesied in Isaiah that this exact thing will be what will be done. He will be pierced for our transgressions, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, I know the medical professionals and our, our growth and knowledge, we know that this is actually just a sign that the blood is coagulated, coagulated, and it actually is separated. It's a sign that he's dead. But I don't think that's why John recorded this. Even though now we know scientifically that proves that he actually did die, I think John recorded this because he's thinking about that rock in the desert that was struck to provide living water. I think he's thinking about Jesus being struck and poured out to offer forgiveness and life. One of the things I haven't told you yet about the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is one of the imagery, the images of this that just I can't get it out of my mind. They in the center of the temple courts, right off to the side, and one of the places out in the outer courts, they had this altar that they would have the sacrifices for the whole nation and for individuals. Each household, each individual for the whole nation. And they would have certain times and certain ways and certain animals that you would have to do according to your place, position, and sin. And this altar was just used by tons of people. And so you can imagine, almost like an anvil, this thing is used and it's just 
covered. The blood. And in the ceremony, the day before Jesus would get up and say these words was the day that over the altar to cleanse it. And the water would flow with the blood and it would become clean again. I think what John is pointing out here in this idea that he is pierced and the blood and the water flowed as he's remembering the Feast of the Tabernacles, the prophecy of Isaiah, and he's going, he's removed the need for the altar. It's been done. The work is finished. He has cleared. It's cleansed. Over the water, poured out. Three takeaways for you today as you kind of walk and think about what to do with this verse in your life. These chapters, I should say. The first is this. Jesus wants to tabernacle with you. He wants to dwell among you. He wants to dwell in you. The center of your life and the holiest of holy ways, he wants to be with you. He desires to be in your life. The second is this. Jesus offers rivers of living water at the cost of belief. John's whole gospel is based on the concept of belief. And what I mean is this, that trusting him, having faith in him, believing him is what brings living, refreshing water. That's the cost. That's the step. He will not force his way in. He will not make you do it. He will not force you to take it. He will stand patiently and offer it to you. You have to believe. You have to trust. You have to put your faith in him. And the last is this. Jesus offers light as a gift to all who choose to follow. Following is a conscious effort to choose the light. To choose his way. To choose him. Don't get it wrong. This isn't obedience for faith or to get faith. It's a gift. But it's something that, again, he will never make you do. It's your choice. You choose to take these steps. You choose to give him space. You choose to take yourself outside of your comfort zone and to let him have. To let him be important enough to pursue. In the end, if you do this, I mean, truly, Jesus wants to be with you. He wants to be with us, offer living water and real life. That's what he wants. When Jesus walked in at the Feast of the Tabernacles, this was his goal, was to attach the tabernacle from rescuing people from Egypt to the salvation he would offer on the cross. And he's just going, look, all I want to do is restore, bring back, 
make whole. I want to give you what you are so in need of, and I want you to experience the real life that you were meant to have, and it can only happen through me. I wonder how many of us just need to think about this this week a little bit more. Living water. Real life. God wants to be with us. If we could take Jesus at his word, believe that it's a gift, believe that we could have living water that flows into our anxieties, our worries, our fears. Gives us patience and understanding and compassion and empathy. That flows into our life. That gives light in dark places. I think I need that a lot right now. I really do. Feast of the Tabernacles. I'm glad I did a little research. I'm really glad that we got to study this. There's so much more here, you guys. Jesus is a brilliant teacher, but an even more powerful and brilliant Savior. 